0: We are desperate for happiness because apparently we're not finding it enough. We look for it in our money, possessions, entertainment, and experiences. Well, now I bring you literally the world's longest study on happiness. And the solution to our need is not surprising. The root of our happiness is relationships. After 80 years of studying generations of people, what gives us the most happiness is relationships, which is a simple answer, but not an easy one. I mean, many of our relationships bring us more trauma and stress and sadness than happiness. So what's the story here? Well, my guest is Robert Waldinger, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, who is director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, which conducted this study. If you aren't aware of Bob, you may have come across his TED Talk titled, What Makes a Good Life, which has over 43 million views. Bob is also co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. He received his A.B. from Harvard College and his M.D. from Harvard Medical School and is a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. Uh, And he directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. Bob's also a Zen master and teaches meditation in New England and around the world. Well, from this study, Bob has now co-authored the book, the good life lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness, which is actually being released the day after this episode goes live. You can find the good life book, wherever you get your books, but you're now about to hear us discuss the highlights on what provides happiness. The things that were just so profound to me. If you find value from this self-helpful podcast, it'd be great. If you would leave a review, let us know what you thought. Best thing you can do is keep these discussions going. You can always connect with me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. Next up, I am with Robert Waldinger talking about the little results of the longest study on happiness ever. And you're really going to want to hear the details. so look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Bob, we just, as of this recording, I just got through Thanksgiving and I had the immense privilege of sitting around the table with, I don't know, it was 10 or 12 of kids and family members and we were reading some of the would you rather cards we do that a lot at the table you know, uh. would, would you rather this so this one came, this is you know a couple of days ago would you rather be rich and work at something you hate or be poor working at something you love i actually think it's a bit of a faulty question but even at face value I was thinking about it as I'm reading your book and your research in many ways is saying, hey, the reality is it's far less relevant either way, whether you're poor or rich, whether you love your work or hate your work, than just the relationships you have. And I'm sitting there thinking, regardless, the wealth is right here at my table. And I felt like that's the such a culmination of the book, of
1: the study. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the wealth, right, the wealth is the relationships, even at work, right? Even Work at what you work at. For most of us, unless we have really solitary jobs, for most of us, the wealth is in the connections we have at work.
0: And I know part of the book, I mean, you say that this isn't new news. This isn't yeah. something new. This is, if anything, we're going back to the the ancient times and yet… I mean, you've I, what, how timely. Well, I, I think anybody would always say that how timely. But I mean, Pascal said, you know, we uh, he, he said a lot about relationships a long time ago. And yet here we are today. But it does feel like, oh, my gosh, we're at more of a disconnected place than we ever have been. And you're coming back and going, guys, we're 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 missing. We're missing this simple thing that's been through the span of times. And yet it feels like we are being drawn further from that
1: right yeah. Yeah. you know we um, we decided to bring this out because I've been publishing papers about this for years but yeah. in academic journals that nobody reads and it seemed so important to to be able to say to people look there's really a good hard science behind this yeah. that yes your grandmother could have told you this you know your clergy could have told you this and they do tell you this but There's also hard science that says our connections are what help us thrive, what get us through life.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I shared that I was going to be talking with you with a couple of friends uh, just on a text thread and had one of them. He's written a book. He says, oh my gosh, I know that guy. I was doing some research on relationships and I found his papers and his studies years ago, then ultimately saw, this, saw his TED talk. And of course I said, uh, he's got a book now. He's no way. So there's one of your pre-orders on Amazon Great. <laughs> right there. Well, I mean, Bob, it got me into thinking just on human behavior. Why do we veer away from it? And I thought about My kids enjoy the dystopian films, right? And that classic film. And it got me to thinking, even yesterday as I was reading through the book, of the consummate, you know, something happens, everybody's obliterated, and there's just individuals or small pockets of people dispersed throughout the world, the country, whatever. and, And what do they do? the entire movie is about them trying to find each other you have the few that hoard things and state of themselves you have the few that try to accumulate power but everybody tries to come together and so then i am thinking, okay they do that and they build right here where we're sitting today you and i in america they do that and then they go back to just looking for resources it looks like that focus on resources like why do we do that we we, we end up alone. We want to come together. We do that, and then we start to fall apart. Is it just a taking for granted uh, and, and losing the initial, like in that dystopian film, man, that was everything coming together. Why do we fall away?
1: Right. Well, you know, we have that in us. We have this this urge to form tribes and to right. be careful about threats out there, and the problem with that is that on the one hand, our tribes can be wonderful and supportive, but we can then look at other people and say, you're different, you're a threat to me, and we can pull back from connecting. Even though most people are trustworthy, most people err on the side of kindness. If we look through history, most people actually uh, feel the need to be generous and share and most of what connects us is way more important than what divides us. So we know all this, and yet we have we have that programmed into us, the the fear of enemies and the wish to have a safe haven in our own tribe. And I think you know what we see is that there are politicians who have for centuries exploited this in us, who can divide us mm-hmm. deliberately, even though most of what we have is in common and most of what we care about, other people care about as well. So all that is to say, unfortunately, some of our biology that tries to keep us safe can also drive us apart from other people.
0: I mean, going through your studies, you've got to have, I know it's impacted your own life. You talked about that, you talk about that in the book, but it is amazing to me how, and I'm I'm gonna say me as well as, as we as a culture, tend to we make a plan for our career for education we make a plan for our career we make a plan for our finances we make a plan for our legacy yada yada yet we would say relationships come first and yet it is just seldom ever the first thing that we make a plan for uh it seems so illogical and yet we we walk that out why why is it that we have what we say, what we would tangi- uh, consciously say is most important. What your study says it's most important. And yet it's seldom the lowest on the list of our daily priorities.
1: Well, we get a whole lot of messages that other things are more important. You know, we get the message that work is important, that making a lot of money so you can buy a lot of material things is going to make you happy, right? We get we get those messages. But when when our original study participants so this is an 85 year study right Right. and and following the same people and when a lot of them got to their 80s we asked them to look back on their lives and we asked them what are you proudest of and what do you regret the most and these 80 year olds said i'm proudest of my relationships i'm proudest of having been a good partner having raised good kids having been a good friend, been a good mentor. And one of the strongest regrets was I spent too much time at work and I didn't spend enough time with the people I care about. And so what we see is that all these messages we get from the culture and even from our families about what's most important are about other things. They're not about relationships. And yet when people look back on their lives, they say, the most important things, the things I'm proudest of are my relationships.
0: It it reminded me, when you talk about the good life, you can easily have that layout of the big, you know, acreage, big house, the pool, the tennis court, the cars, everybody, even together. Maybe it's a big wedding, whatever. And it's the good life. We have wealth. We have abundance. We could do everything. And yet we see so many depictions of that in movies and, and whatnot, especially where then, the relationships are highly toxic and that's that drama. It's almost like the crime dramas that we're drawn to wanting to view. I don't know if that's because it speaks to some of the darkness in our, in ourselves. I I wonder why we're curious for that, why we're drawn to it.
1: Well, we know, you know, relationships are always going to have conflict, right? Any relationship of, of any length and any, any depth, people are going to differ in what they want um, they're going to differ in their opinions. That's okay. That's not a problem. What's difficult is figuring out ways to work out our differences, and so that we emerge feeling like we're okay with each other, like nobody lost, nobody had to knuckle under, yeah. um, and that—that's the challenge. And so I think we're fascinated by relationship drama, like you know, in TV and movies and things, because. We have dramas in our own life. We certainly have fallings out. We have family feuds. And usually it's because we haven't figured out a way to manage the differences that are absolutely normal and par for the course. Yeah. And and I think what I'd love to see us do more of is educate ourselves and our kids about the absolute normal nature of disagreements and conflicts and how do we work them out with each other so that our relationships are stronger, not weaker?
0: Well, in relational skills, which of course we get in, or you get into in the book, and we'll get on it just just a moment. I, I mean, the thing that I think burdens me with this concept, Bob, is looking, and it feels like you guys did the research. You did the TED Talk; forty plus million people watched that. They're obviously hit a nerve. Now you have the book and, and we're talking before it comes out, I'm sure it'll sell like wildfire and I hope it does. And I want to help it do that as well. And yet, just as you talked about the regrets of the eighties, um, I did a show on regret recently with Daniel pink, who I think gives an endorsement to your, to your book. Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: On the power of regret and talked about his studies on that talked about Bronnie Ware, the Australian hospice nurse who did a book on deathbed, you know, regrets. And so we have this regrets it's often from an older person and it's a long game as you talk about it it brought to mind uh neil maxwell's quote never give up what you want most for what you want today i feel like, man we're even with this truth that's what we're looking at it's me looking at my own health and wellness today and going okay am i gonna eat my vegetables take my supplements do those things that i don't feel i don't i don't it's not like popeye and i have the spinach and go holy smacks i feel great you know my supplements have never lifted me off the ground it's This is a long-term game that when we're talking about that today, man, I want entertainment. I want titillation. I want whatever. And you're saying, well, your happiness now, even in tomorrow and the next day, whatever, is from the investment in your relationships. And that's just, that doesn't give me the dopamine hit right now. And that feels heavy.
1: Yeah. You know, I love that quote that never give up what you want long-term for what you want today. And yeah. if you think about that in relationships, it's really so relevant that, you know, today I want to win. Today I want my idea to be the one that, that rules the day, right? With my friend or with my family member, with my child, right? I want to be obeyed. I want to be, you know, uh, but what do I want long-term? Yeah. Well, I want a child who is healthy and respects differences and respects people i want you know a friendship that goes on and is strong i don't want to win and make my friend feel defeated so it's that long-term perspective that i think is so needed in relationships right and even in our think about our political life long term what do we want we want to live together in some kind of peace and we want to live together so that everybody is okay you know, that because that is going to make us all more okay. If we could think about that rather than winning today, that would be enormous in terms of our relationship health.
0: Well, and I'm taking ownership of it, you know, as I sit here, Bob, and so often um, I have a big family. Um, I'm pretty darn introverted. And I sit there and I'll That's find the- myself struggling and going, okay. Do I give up what I want right now, which may be just some me time, which is great. Some, I mean, that's, that's, I'm, I'm happy with that to a point. Uh, that's great self-care and boundaries and all that. But so often feel like, gosh, right now, I, I really want X. I want to do this. And yet, am I going to do that or am I going to play the long game and invest over here in my family, in my relationships, in my friendships? Um, that, that's been even a harder one because with a big family to take the time and go over here and go, man, I don't. I know it'd be good to meet with the guys, but I just, man, I got stuff to do. And yet knowing that it's here and stuff like this, reading your book, going, no, but if I don't invest a year from now, I'm going to be in trouble. And again, it's that, well, I guess we start with awareness and then get it with the, I mean, what do you, what do you call it? A longer term view is a, we could easily say a maturity, a wisdom, a, how would you define that?
1: Well, and it's a, it's a sense of what will I need um, over time? And I think what you're saying is you're going to need those friends. So as much as you love your kids and you got to be there for them, they're going to grow up and, and, and launch. And of course you want them yeah. to get launched and you're going to need your own life, your own social circle. You're also going to want to model for your kids that yes, Family is really important. It's central, but we also want to have other people in our lives. And if you model that for your kids, they'll learn how to take care of their own friendships and their own relationships.
0: Well, talk about the specific relationships then, Bob, because you do, as you talk about the book and you have, it was 700 participants, some initially at least. And buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, it's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top-tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash kevin. That's all lowercase. which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to dot com. Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. yahoo finance.com
1: the original one 724 and then we added 1315 so we got more than 2000
0: the stories were primarily couples or based around you know a a person and their significant other is that I mean, I think we culturally, I do. I just kind of by proxy make that paramount. But and you do have a section, a chapter, I think, just for on on those intimate relationships. We could call them romantic. But are you give me? I, I almost want to not a hierarchy. I don't think that that's a fair question. But can I have the good life? without a, a significant other. And I'm just kind of poking around. Yeah, go.
1: Oh, I love that question. It's a really important question. Because okay. something like 30% or more of us just here in the US um, are not partnered. Okay. We don't have intimate
0: partners 30%. Wow. Okay. But,
1: but all these benefits are available to us. You don't need an intimate partner to get these benefits, that what we seem to need are people who we feel are close to us. So I'll give you another example. When we asked our original people, name all the people in your life who you could call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared. And some people could list quite a number of people. Some people couldn't list anybody on the planet. And so what we know is that you don't have to have an intimate partner, but you probably need at least one or two people in the world who you feel really have your back, yeah. really would be there for you if you were in trouble, if you needed them. And so that's what's important. And that's what conveys a lot of the benefit in our lives and benefit to our health.
0: In the book, I know you do a lot of not uh, kind of paralleling different. People, Different genders, different sexes, different age, different socioeconomic, different uh, countries, you know, even of origin and saying, yeah, but this the relational aspects still pretty much align as far as what they need. OK, with that in mind. How do personality styles fit into this? We, I, I mentioned being an in, you know introvert extrovert, and there's lots of baggage and, and nuances around those terms. But in saying, gosh, for most people to have the good life, to find this fulfillment from relationships, there needs to be an int, uh, one two more intimate relationships, like you said, somebody you could call on at night who would have your back to keep those at that point, is it daily interaction? Do I need to make sure we have weekly interaction? If it's somebody who's across, you talked about that. Well, even your co-author, Mark, you guys, you know, you don't live together. You don't see each other face to face. Right. Um, But I guess I'm asking an aspect of frequency. And then from that frequency, because you could say quantity. um, And then, you know, there's an aspect of quality for you to have those relationships that are going to provide this fulfillment.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we all need different frequencies. So as you said, you're more of an introvert, Uh which is hard to believe because you're such a lively, great interviewer, but I believe you, but I I know what you're saying. And, (laughs) you know, and I think we're all, we're all on a spectrum. Uh There are some people who are introverts who are pretty shy. And there's some people who are extroverts, you know, real party animals. And most of us are somewhere in the, in between. Yeah. And it's perfectly normal to be shy. That's not a problem. And you can have great relationships and be an introvert. It's just that you don't need as many of them. For some of us, it's exhausting to be with a lot of people. They need a lot of alone time to refuel. And yeah. so for those people, it might just be one or two relationships, and it might be you know, contact every so often. Some people are much better at being alone. And um, and that's just fine. Other people need a lot of hits of friendly interaction, you know, all day, several times a day, you know. And for those people, being alone is depleting. Mm-hmm. And so I think what each person wants to do is check in with themselves, okay? Like, what, when am I feeling at my best? What's my relationship life like during those times when I'm feeling best? Is it when I have lots of interaction each day? Mm. Is it when I don't have a lot of interaction, but once in a while I have a really good connection with somebody? And so each of us takes our own temperature, if you will, in that way, and figures it out for ourselves.
0: Okay. take. The, let's go to quality then. The quality of the relationship if i look again just to use the easy analogy of uh, you know nutritional health and if somebody says you know what man i'm, I'm kind of good on you know shoe leather and some great nuts and I'm, I'm i think i'm i think i'm good and i would go well i i think you're probably i think you could probably be better if you put some vegetables in there and you know maybe some vitamins and some some better things in there so the same thing over here that relationally because you tell a story uh, I'm I'm forgetting the person, the guy who lived in the trailer kind of by himself. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm reading that and, th- and but he, he felt like he was good and we're looking at it going, gosh, I don't think so. There are some, some tenants, some pillars of, of fulfillment that you're, you're missing. So on that same note, because I see it, especially with guys, and I'm sure you're more aware of this than I am Bob of, of, them thinking, you know, I don't want the touchy feely emotion stuff. I don't want that. I just, I'm not going to go there with my wife, with my friends, man. We talk about, you know, sports and and I'm good. Could they be good in that? Or would you say, gosh, without some level of emotional sharing, you're you're like, and again, I need to own this. This has been me. This has been me, Bob. Okay. That I, I, I'm, I'm open. I'm personable. I'm doing that, but I don't share my feelings. We don't go there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you can be good that way. Okay. I mean, we are not, one size never fits all when we talk about human life and relationships. Right. And, and that's important, I think, for us to name, right? You know, that some, some people, guys in particular, but with some women too, don't feel comfortable sharing their feelings. They didn't grow up that way. They didn't learn to do that. You can learn to do that with time and it can be very rewarding. But for some people, they don't do that. But for them, just being next to somebody, you know, playing basketball with somebody, um, whatever it might be, that's okay for them. So I think, again, we have to check in with ourselves about that. The hard part is when there's a mismatch. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm not good at sharing my feelings, but my partner feels close, if I share my feelings, then, then there's a mismatch. And then maybe we can find ways to meet in the middle where my partner expects a little less, but I give a little more, yeah. right? So we find ways to do this, but but there's there's no particular form of being in relationship with people that's the right way Okay. in that respect. I did
0: want to pull out, maybe I should have done this earlier, a couple aspects of the study that I really appreciated. And one was that it was and I think we don't realize, and I'm in this industry, but we don't realize how most studies are on the negative side. And as you said, what makes people sick and what was so profound, or one of the things that was profound about this study is the point of it was what makes people thrive. And I just hadn't really thought about that. And as I sat there, I thought, yeah, I live in this personal development, this is my vocation. And I didn't really yeah. think about that. Yeah, how many studies are there on what makes us thrive? And uh, not on what what makes people sick. That was one piece. And then the other, and I wanted to say this because I mentioned the regrets aspect, Daniel Pink's book, The Power of Regret and Bronnie Ware, The Deathbed Regrets. But another significant piece or profound aspect of this book, as you say, is it was not all on and maybe even not primarily on retrospective uh aspects with people it was prospective meaning this wasn't just regrets that they had in arrears this was right now as you checked in with them what every couple years at least
1: every couple of years yeah. you know how happy are you uh how much do you enjoy work how's your relationship how are your kids you know all that stuff we asked about over and over again and that really makes a difference because you get to plot somebody's life yeah. on all these different dimensions. Cause you've asked them the questions over and over again.
0: One of the things that stood out too was how, what a gift and you speak to it in the book, but what a gift to have those every couple year check-ins for a lifetime. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at the stats of that group of people, which you had for people, if you don't know, and I I, don't, I may, maybe I'll say this in the intro, but could you say, in a, in a sense, half of them were more on the affluent side and half of them were not? Is that too yes, simplistic? Well,
1: about about one third were Harvard College undergrads, yeah. meaning they at least had the resources to go to college, even though quite a number of them were on scholarship. Mm-hmm. But yes, more much more privileged just to be able to go to college in 1940, right? Um, and then... So about a third of them were that. And then about two thirds of them were very poor, under-resourced, from very troubled families. So we had privileged and quite underprivileged.
0: Okay. So if we take those people, initially 700, then it it grew and look at them. My curiosity was... How the benefit to that group or the new the the differences in that group culturally from another group that was not checked in every two years. Tell tell me about that because I'm yeah, go.
1: Yeah, well it's hard because we don't know. Like we you're right. We could do that. Yeah. Like we we could do that study. But what we did do, we asked everybody, um, after they'd been in the study for many years, we asked them, how has being part of the study influenced your life. Some people wrote back saying, hasn't influenced my life at all. Some people wrote back saying, I hate your darn questions. (laughs) And, you know, it was just a nuisance. But many, many people said, this was so important to me, because I knew that every couple years, I was going to get a set of questions that asked me to think about my life and where it's going, and what's important to me. And it made a big difference in how I thought about myself and how I thought about where I was going in my life at that moment. And so what we know is that by studying these people, we changed many of them. And of course, you're not supposed to do that in the purest experimental research, but you can't do that in this kind of research. It's impossible.
0: It just made me think about the even even compiling a group of people like my friends and family say hey let's all hire you know a therapist or somebody to go through a, I'd love to see the questions you know that you guys did is that available anywhere
1: Yeah I could send you we have a whole I could send you a great big PDF of all the questionnaires it wouldn't be everything we did yeah. but it would give you all the questions from the questionnaires
0: I I would I would love it and really have the thought of even with my own family to say hey guys let's once a year at new year's whatever let's go through these questions together whether it's together whether we get somebody to kind of facilitate that because bob I'm I'm thinking about uh some of the data that I have read and and personal experience on wearable devices so here I've got my my Garmin that tracks yeah, my yeah. my everything Oh, you got yours there you go so we've been interested. So I, I, you don't know this about me, but I work within functional medicine as well. My studio is here in a functional medicine practice. And we know that just putting that watch or that wearable device or that tracking device, a, a ring, whatever it may be on somebody by proxy is going to help them cause them facilitate better decisions. Yes. They're going to be at the grocery aisle and look at the Cheetos and kind of and know that that's on there and go, Ooh, maybe not even more. So if they know the good doctor is going to check the
1: data exactly exactly and you know i'll tell you i use a meditation app to time my daily meditation i'm a zen practitioner right Mm -hmm. i find that the meditation app gives me gold stars when i do a certain number of meditations and i have to i'm so embarrassed to say this but i actually care about getting the next gold star. And it makes me sit down on the cushion more often than I might otherwise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love the psychology of it. I, I, so I use, uh, I'm part of this, uh, Strava group. So if people listen, don't know, you can, you know, if you've got a a wearable device, you can sign up. It's kind of like Facebook or social media for athletes. And I've had some people say, yeah, I don't like being a part of that because then I'm trying to impress everybody with my results. And I found that, I mean, I can't go out and just, you know, do a killer performance every day in every run and every ride. But it makes me think about it. Okay, what am I doing today? How do I feel? Gosh, I don't really feel great. I am going to tone it down. Or I think I've been going too hard. I need to go easy. And so I I write that in the description. Today, I decided to do this. And it makes me so intentional. I feel accountable because I know my friends are going to be looking at it. And 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 now I have this intentional workout life that I wouldn't, especially as I do most of mine solo. Okay, how about on my relationships? Yeah, go. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, I was thinking about this because... I know someone who started a wellness program where he got people just to have buddies. So you had a buddy wait for you at the gym or wait for you to go for a run. And if you have somebody waiting for you, you're so much more likely to get out of bed and show up, right? Because in other words, relationships, just like these wearables, can help us be more mindful and show up for the things that we know we should do in our lives.
0: Well, I'll divulge this. I think she'd be fine with it. She, my mom listens to my show. So, hey, mom, I hope this is okay. She texted me recently, has a group of friends said, yeah, we're just, we, we're all kind of at a place we want to get weller. We want to you know, lose some weight. We want to, we want to get together and ask me about some supplements and about a program. And I said, man, I, I honestly think the most powerful thing you guys have is, is each other. Can you guys come together? Maybe hire a coach. and I see if you guys, don't, if you're watching the video, Bob's cheering, uh, could you come together and hire a coach together, but just stay together and, and do that because I just don't see more power. And I'd say on the other side, more deficit. Than a supportive or non-supportive social group, it seems to me to almost eclipse anything we would endeavor to do individually.
1: It really does. It really does. And so we can use our relationships to make us better in so many ways.
0: When we look, just to take a ten thousand foot view, Bob, at and we mentioned some of them, you know, money and and, and whatnot, but the things. That some of the headline things that we tend to just culturally think, think that's going to lead to happiness where we're just flat out wrong. What would be top of your list?
1: Uh, definitely wealth. Yeah. Uh, so wealth doesn't make us unhappy. It's just neutral. It doesn't make us happy or doesn't make us unhappy. So beyond getting our basic material needs met, wealth doesn't do it. Fame. You know a lot of people say i want to be famous you know and there are people who are famous for being famous yeah fame does not make you happier and actually it often makes you less happy because you then are not able to move around freely in the world because people will want to touch you and be with you when you may not want to all that right so wealth and fame don't really do it uh working yourself to death doesn't really make you happier um Accomplishing things certainly does make us more satisfied. True. But, you know, becoming a workaholic is not a recipe for happiness. And so all of those things are important to name because the culture holds them out. You know, we get all these messages from the culture all day long. Like, if you buy this car, you're going to be a cooler person, right? If you... You know, if you use this face cream, you're going to look young forever. So it's about buying things, right? It's about having money to buy things. Um, And the fame stuff. You know, you think about all the TV shows where people are competing to become superstars. Yeah, well, that doesn't really do it for people, we find out. We had many famous people in our study. They weren't happier than the people who led non-famous lives.
0: Okay. That was another curiosity I had, Bob, as you talked about the, uh, I I, I don't know if there's a better word you'd rather use, but the affluent, those who had more means than, I mean, you had some that you could go to college, some that were were poor and you talk about this some to the book, uh, in the book, but I wanted to ask you here, the propensity to achieve, the good life, to have relationships, to work through the struggles? Did you see a difference between those two groups? Because we could, we could sum up by proxy and say, hey, those who had more means didn't struggle as much. Is that good? Or did it not the ones who did actually had a little more strength, a little more wherewithal? I mean, I could make that, I could surmise that. Did you actually see much of a difference there?
1: life brings struggles to everybody, like every life has difficulty in it, right? And I know that's a truism, but it's really important to name because we want to imagine, God, there's somebody out there who, who doesn't struggle, who doesn't have hardship, and no life is without hardship. But I think your question is really important, which is if you have to struggle more, if you're poor, if you're disadvantaged, if you're discriminated against, does it make you stronger And actually, no, it doesn't. Um, You know, I mean, you know, gosh, discrimination is just awful (laughs) for people. Um, That Yes, there are people who can be resilient in the face of hardship. But most people need an environment that's accepting. They need to grow up in that kind of environment. They need to live in a society where they feel accepted, where they feel like they are not overwhelmed by hardship right so Mm. when when we feel like we have the resources to meet challenges then we get stronger by meeting challenges but when we feel overwhelmed by the challenges coming our way then we get we get worn down and that can happen no matter who you are and no matter how big your bank account is
0: It's interesting because it's tempting for me, even in my position, even as I look at the books uh, behind me of people I've had on the show that uh, I wouldn't say the majority just had it easy. They had, you know, they had some significant challenges and you can, I can almost get to the thought of thinking, gosh, it seems like there's a lot of success stories from really hard uh, backgrounds. But you're kind of saying now what we really saw is it kind of weighs, you know, if, you, if you have means, there's pros and cons. If you don't, there's pros and cons. And at the end of the day, it kind of evens
1: out? Well, it does. What what we do find, there's a good study that, that took a lot of different surveys of thousands, tens of thousands of people, basically saying, does your happiness go up as you make more money? Mm. And what they found was that yes, it does, when you are below the level where your needs are met, so in the United States, a few years ago, it was like seventy five thousand dollars a year. I saw that was so folded. interesting, yeah, yes, yeah, right? Sure. so if if you're below that, yes, as you make more money, your happiness goes up. But once you get above seventy five thousand, as you make more and more and more money, your happiness doesn't budge much at all, yeah. And so it's really important to know that that, that, you know, that making more money is not going to be the key to having a, a happier, a better life. Yeah,
0: that's that was a significant one. Uh, I'll never I always remember when I thought making six figures. If I can get to that point, I'll be I'll be good or 10 grand a month or whatever it was. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. then doing that and realizing, no, I think I'm worrying more about it now uh, because you, you invest it, you buy more stuff, you do whatever, you got more responsibilities, doesn't seem to provide any peace. So to see you guys put it in numbers at that 75 ish is dramatic. When we look in and think, what the heck are we doing?
1: Right. What are we, right?
0: You're looking at health was interesting. I, I mean, I know this, I know the value of relationships to health and yet is that generally what I talk about most? I find myself talking about the food you eat or right. don't eat, the you know again supplements or, or, or whatever, sleep, um, looking at exercise. I mean, I'm looking at those things. And when do I put and say, you know what? Because that's what your book showcases to a fair degree. You 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 tell or get into that a little bit of saying, gosh, regardless, more so than what you eat, how you exercise, literal health. I mean, we're talking actual biomarkers here are right. well i don't know is it fair to say are helped more by relationship than those other things play with that
1: well it's hard to say more okay. right it's hard to compare and i do want to call out that what the work you're doing emphasizing nutrition and sleep and exercise those are really important and our study shows that too yeah it matters a lot if you take care of your body right huge but you know what we find is that Relationships actually predict that you're going to be healthier longer in your life. You're less likely to get the diseases of aging if you have good relationships. Your brain declines more slowly as you get older if you have good relationships. And so what we've been doing the last 10 years is figuring out, so how does this work? And other studies are trying to figure this out too. Why? How could relationships get into your body And make it less likely that you would get arthritis like how could that happen right so what we think it is is about stress and stress regulation that good relationships are stress regulators so I'll I'll give you an example Um, so right now I'm happy talking to you we're having a really nice conversation right but in a in an hour or so something really upsetting could happen to me and I'd be upset and I'd be ruminating about it, my body would go into fight or flight mode, right. right? So my heart rate would go up, I might start to sweat, stress hormones would start to circulate at higher levels, and little hits of inflammation, right? So then if I come home, and I have somebody at home, like my wife, or if I could call somebody and talk about what was upsetting, I can literally feel my body calm down. And that's what we're meant to do. So after something stressful happens, we're meant to go into fight or flight mode to meet the stressor, but then come back to equilibrium. And what we think happens is that good relationships help us return to that equilibrium that keeps our bodies on an even keel. So what happens if you don't have anybody you can talk to about this? Well, what we think happens, if you're lonely, if if you are chronically upset, is that your body maintains these higher levels of stress hormones, this higher level of inflammation, Uh and that, that that breaks down the body, this kind of low level chronic fight or flight mode breaks down multiple body systems. And that over time is what breaks down our health. That's our best working hypothesis for what's going on here.
0: Let me ask the quantity versus quality question again regarding stress. The book we we bring it up a lot. Why zebras don't get ulcers? Uh, I, I love so. Uh, and for folks, if you haven't read it, uh, zebras out there chewing grass, having a grand time on the savannah, uh, nice pulse rate, everything's good. And then all of a sudden, here comes the lion or the you know, the hyenas or whatever going after, and it just boom, fl- flight or fight or flight. You know, they, they're going to fly. Boom. They take off. There's however long, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever, massive chase fighting for its life, literally. And then the lion doesn't get it and veers off. And a zebra comes back, comes back to the herb, starts eating grass again. Perfect. That's why they don't get all, they don't They don't talk about it the rest of the day. They don't go on social media and post about it. They're not getting PTSD. <laughs> and I, and, and please, I'm not minimizing PTSD at, at all again, but that's why they wrote the book on, on zebras here. So, there's one how we manage the stress uh I, I want you to speak to that how important uh, kind of the 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 line between the balance of that how we manage it when it happens because it's going to happen and all but also looking at okay but yeah, but when is it, when is it too much? I mean if that zebra's getting chased every sixty seconds it's going to pass out and die anyways, so there is uh, where where do we look at that? Is it just how we handle the stress, or do we need to? And for, you know, from your studies, did you, you need to moderate how much there is.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's not just you know if we're good enough, strong enough, we'll handle any kind of stress. Not true. Okay. That's why PTSD happens. PTSD happens because we are overwhelmed with something that we can't handle. And what could be more overwhelming than Physical violence, yeah. uh, then sexual violence, then all these horrible things that we can do to each other as humans that cause us to have PTSD. Um, so what what we know is that we need to have stress in doses that are manageable, and so it is important to try to create environments where we are not overwhelmed by stress. Um, you know what you know, I'll tell you actually that my stress has decreased since the pandemic because I've stopped commuting every day. Mm. I had a 45 minute commute to downtown Boston to my hospital where my research lab was and my office was. And I don't do that anymore. (laughs) And um, I'll tell you, it makes a difference. And, And that's a minor stressor, right? Being in rush hour traffic. But still, if, you know, those kinds of stressors, Can be worked on in our lives so that we do what's less stressful and we we try to eliminate the stressors that we can, knowing that we'll never fully eliminate stress from our lives. That's just not possible.
0: With your, in the studies, when stress does happen, though, those people who had a gooder life, uh, who, who had, who achieved that that place that we're looking for, did you find that they were, was it, yeah. What was the aspect in them that allowed them to recover maybe quicker yeah. than others?
1: Yeah. Well, again, I'll give you, a, um, some information from our study. Many of our men came of age during world war II, right. and so yeah. they went off to serve in the war and when they came back, we asked them questions like what, what got you through it? Some of these people saw combat saw people killed, saw their friends killed, and were under terrible stress. And we asked, what got you through it? And everybody to a person said, it was my relationship. It was the letters I got from the people back home who I knew were thinking of me and loved me. It was my buddies, my fellow soldiers. It was my commanding officer. Um, so there were all these, what they all talked about was connections. And what what we know, is that our connections with other people get us through these hard times that are always heading our way. You know, many of our people grew up during the Great Depression. Um, All of us just lived through a pandemic we couldn't have seen coming. These kinds of big stressors are always gonna be happening. And what we find is that if you have a network of solid relationships, those connections will help you manage the challenges coming your way.
0: Bob, I don't know if I missed this in the book, but I'll ask it here in that same vein of relationships of what got me through it. It was my relationship. Um, how about relationships from a faith aspect? Did that play in it?
1: You know, it did. We asked people about what role faith and spirituality played. Uh-huh. And some people didn't, See a role for it in their lives at all. And they were just as happy as the people who were involved in spiritual practices and religious practices. So it wasn't, it, it was that for some people they felt called to a spiritual life and other people didn't feel called to that. What we did find is that the people who turned to religion or spirituality to help them manage difficult times, those people found great solace in religion and spirituality so the people who sought it out really found it beneficial
0: let me ask the same question and take spirituality out of it but just say people who felt called to a greater purpose than just themselves uh so if they didn't cite spirituality they were very connected to well obviously in this aspect relationships giving serving others the purpose that we find in service whatnot was that would you where would you put that in the spectrum of happiness
1: we found that almost everybody who was really fulfilled in their life was invested in things beyond themselves okay and that, so, that what we call generativity, they really began as they got into their adult lives to care more about other people, care more about causes. So, it might be raising kids, it might be mentoring younger people at work, it might be working hard for a cause you really believe in, but that that concern for something beyond me was almost essential. May probably was essential to people feeling like they'd had a good life.
0: Yeah, I'm interested as we look at when I ask you those things where we get it wrong uh, in looking for health and happiness, and you know, you said money and fame and, and whatnot. When you looked at the people who did have the strongest relationships, the strongest ties, did you find that that generally related to? health in the other areas of their lives that those people generally did end up making more money as well or making good financial decisions and and good decisions you know via work and whatnot did it translate correlate
1: it does correlate but what we find and lots of other other studies find is that if you have if you have good relationship skills if you're good with people and you value relationships you do better in your work life Hmm. You know, people with what we call emotional intelligence, people skills, do way better than the smartest people. Mm -hmm. You know, IQ isn't as good a predictor of your success at work as is emotional intelligence. Mm
0: -hmm. A profound, it's more than profound. I feel like it's almost, um, I don't have a word for it, actually, where you, just the aspect of we don't achieve happiness. That's right out of the book. We don't achieve happiness. I'd have everybody who's driving to work right now or working out just stop for a second and and think about what that means. We don't achieve happiness. And I don't know if this is how you wrote it or if I paraphrase it, Bob, but I said, we either have it or not now in meaning or purpose that we attribute to our current life. So here we all are, no matter what's going on I mean that's just human nature. We look at it and go I'm happy or not right now because of x these environmental factors, these circumstantial factors and if I want to be happy or be happy at all, I need to change those. And it's not that you're not dis- it's not that you're discounting again, challenge, stress, trauma, whatever, but you're saying you don't achieve just that term is almost I think for a lot of people that would be flat out of- offensive and you can't you can't even hold that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, think about it. Like right now, um, I'm happy talking to you, but I won't be happy all day long, at least not at the same level. And there are times when I'll be unhappy. So happiness comes and goes. But that sense of the basic okayness of life, that's something we can build. And th- with that sense of purpose, you know. I, I'm also happy because I'm talking to you about something I care about deeply, yeah. and I really want to get this out to the world. So that makes me feel like, okay, this is worthwhile for me. And so on both counts, I'm happy. I'm happy both because I'm enjoying my talk with you, but I'm also happy because this means something to me. But happiness is not something we achieve and then we're done, right? We don't get to a happy place and then that's it, we're set. That's just not how happiness works. It it waxes and wanes. It comes and goes.
0: We'll play with that word. I could have done this at the top of the show, maybe to do some justice uh, also on you'd give a definition for the happiness that you're talking about. I'm going to ask you to do that because I've, I've somewhat, uh, gotten a little sour on the term to some degree. Cause we see it everywhere. Happy, 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 happy. And I'm thinking, man, yeah, happiness is, is fleeting. It's all come back and go, well, maybe I think we're talking about joy. I want, I want consistent joy or maybe it's, you know, fulfillment and peace, happy moments, but, but you take it. And, um, and I think I've got it in my notes that I just can't find it. So I'm going to ask you, you define the two different types of happiness, I believe.
1: Yeah. They're kind of two basic flavors of happiness yeah. that the research finds, Yeah, one is called hedonic well-being and right. it comes from hedonism. It's like, right. am I having fun right now? Am I at a great party? Am I, you know, that's that's am I happy right now? And hedonic happiness comes and goes all day long. Then there's what's called eudaimonic well-being, eudaimonic. which is really, is life meaningful? And the best example I can give is the example of reading to your child before your child goes to sleep. So you're sitting in your child's bed and you're reading to her and you're reading the book, Good Night Moon, and you've read it eight times. And she's saying, read it again, please read it one more time. And you're exhausted and you've had a really hard day. Is it, are you hedonically happy? No. Is it fun? No. Is it the most meaningful thing you can imagine doing in that moment? Yes. Right. And that's the difference between, you know, hedonic well-being and this kind of longer term okayness. Yes, this is what I want to be doing, even when it's not fun in the moment.
0: Which, again, we're back to the long game and, uh, you know, what we want overall, as opposed to what we want right now, but not to throw the baby out with the ba- I mean, I do want. I do want hedonic happiness. I, yes. I would like some today. I don't mind having some in the next hour. I'm kind of thinking right now, I'm kind of in the mood for sushi. That'll be a nice little hedonic uh, pleasure. Um, though, it, hey, it's sushi. It could be worse. Uh, it has some could long-term. Worse, right?
1: <laughs> and you should have some of that, right? We yeah. need hits of that. We right. need hits of hedonism. We really do.
0: And yet, and there we are. And you guys talk about this. We're at this place now. I, 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 let me, am I am i correct in in saying this as the non-researcher though that it feels like we are in a time of speaking of the word hits where we are we are giving up that longer term joy for a hit of something that will give us that dopamine right now. And of course we can speak and I I get tired of picking on social media, but man, it just is. We have this device in our pockets that we can just be, we never have to be bored again. We never need to, well, actually invest. You talk about that. You talk about the interest or how the interesting aspect of our language that we spend time, we pay, you know, we, we pay attention. We pay. And when do we invest? And right now, man, I can just spend, 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 spend forever. There's always something new to look at. There's always something uh, for that dopamine hit. And um, yeah, it feels dangerous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the problem with our screens is that they're so good at capturing our attention and holding it Yeah, and, and screens aren't bad. It's just that we need to be as intentional as we can about how we use the screens and how we use social media. And so there's actually a little pointer that, that, you know, might be helpful to some of the people tuning in here, which is that depending on how you use social media, you will either feel drained and maybe like you're missing out and maybe a little sadder or a little lower energy, or you'll feel more energized. So let's say you scroll through somebody's Instagram feed and they're looking like they're living their best life and you're not feeling so great today, you're going to end up probably after five or 10 minutes feeling a little worse. Mm -hmm. Let's say you connect with some people who are doing a really wonderful thing for other people in the world on social media and you feel energized and encouraged by what they're doing, you're going to leave that encounter with social media feeling a little better. So what I would say is check in with yourself. Mm. After you've used social media for 10 minutes, your favorite platform, does it make me feel better? Does it make me feel more upbeat? Or does it make me feel more drained, more down? And if you find things online that make you feel more energized, stay with those. If you find things online that make you feel worse, more afraid, more closed off to the world, stay away from those. Be more intentional about how you use your screens.
0: I I had a time where I had Instagram uh on my phone and i i ultimately took all social media off years ago but had it on there and yeah i would end up with woodworking stuff that's something that i do and it'd be yeah. man that was oh see it's not, that was energizing and yet they yeah. could go over here and you know sometimes even my kids would show like a a, a montage of of fails they call them you know people wrecking on their bikes whatever. and i'm watching going oh my anxiety's up this is i don't it's it's intriguing it's horrifically fascinating to some degree but I don't feel good. And so that barometer you're talking about seems um, powerful. Very powerful. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. The, the screens aren't going away. Yeah. And so that's why we have to really figure out, okay, how are we going to use them?
0: You talked about IQ a moment ago, and then you talked about the, in essence, elevating EQ um, uh, above that, at least in this frame of reference, emotional quotient. Now, in your book, you use the term social fitness. Again, man, physical fitness. That's the world. I was a pro athlete. I, I know that arena. I'm, I'm a dyed in the old fan of, of that but social fitness over here. Cause ultimately at the end of the day, I mean, it didn't get me much far. I didn't get that far in the book. And I'm thinking it feels like the, I mean, if I want the good life, if I want my life to give me peace and fulfillment, not down the road, but right now today and tomorrow and next week, there's nothing more important than my social fitness. And where I really came into it, just, you know, thinking uh, off the cuff or, or, or just naturally was, I need to audit myself. How how am I socially? Because I've got to see a C of friends and family, and they all know. They know my stuff. They see me. They can tell you, oh yeah, Kevin. I mean, he's a good guy, but and give me that list. What's the butt list? Is what I'm thinking of. And how can I increase my my SF, my social fitness?
1: Yeah. And the reason we called it social fitness is to because it's a good analogy yeah. with physical fitness, right? You know, so you go to the gym or you go for a bike ride, you do a workout and you don't come home and say, I'm done. I don't ever have to do anything again, right? right? You know, it's a practice. It's right. an ongoing practice. And what we want to emphasize is that social fitness tending to our relationships is also an ongoing practice. We want to make it an, a daily, weekly practice rather than something we figure, oh, it'll just take care of myself. It, it's a, you know, we don't think our bodies are just going to take care of themselves. We know they won't. We have to be active. And the same with our relationships.
0: Well, then let me ask you, and I, maybe it's a chicken or the egg question somewhat, but it feels like before, because I, I can easily look at my relationships. Okay, I've got this relationship. I've got this. So here's 10 relationships that are key in my life right now. If I want them better, I need to go into those and work on them. But do I not feel... First, take a look in the mirror and say, who am I coming into these relationships? How do you give me the tension there?
1: Well, it is who am I? What kind of person am I in a relationship? So am I a person who just takes? Am I a person who just wants people to listen to me and be interested in my stuff? Or am I a person who's really interested in a mutual give and take, right, where people help me and I really give back. I really help them. People listen to me. I listen to them. Um, People are willing to let me take risks in a relationship. Let me try new things and I'm going to be willing to let them do the same. So it's really how, how much am I willing to be the kind of relationship partner that I want someone else to be for me?
0: It, it takes me back to the it's just an easy one to grab onto. how to win friends and influence people, uh, which I cut my teeth on as a kid through my parents have me read. I had my kids read it. And it's just this is how you just you give people joy in your presence. It sounds selfish how to win friends and influence people. And I think some people have some baggage around that perspective. But it is, if I'm going to have a rich relationship, if I think about who I love to be in relationship with most, man, I can tell you who it is and I can tell you why. It's the respect that they give me. It's the, yeah, the, they, they're the kind of person that's going to go, huh, tell me more, not just jump exactly. in. Yeah, and yet it's so easy to, to miss, am I being that person? I would love one of those, what do they call them? The, uh, the, like the 360 degree uh, audit of yourself?
1: right yeah right where you get everybody to say okay what's kevin like really you know how good a listener is he that kind of thing
0: i mean it feels key to this in essence now again you're going to go with that relationship to that person and talk about the unique dynamics of that um you know let me ask you about that as in regards to the people in our lives. this is something that i got frustrated with i'll be candid with the concept of the structure of marriage that I saw—I'd say culturally, but I'm going to say honestly, more so even from a faith-based uh, aspect—and and I'll even say Christianity—that's where I came from. I come from, and it is this easy propensity to get married, come together with that significant other, and they are everything. They're they're your soulmate, and they're oh, your yeah. everything. And I realized as I got in my marriage, man, it's impossible. I can't relate to my wife if she if she said, "Oh my gosh, you know what it's like being a mom and delivering a baby." I, yeah, I, yeah. Don't. I don't. And you so don't. we're kind of that. So uh, where we talk about it takes a village to you know raise a a kid. Would that did you how did you see that play out in the study with people who had different relationships that fulfill different things that that and i'm going to say specifically that one significant other can't be the end all for every relationship need
1: yes and what you're saying is important because i think we've been we've been sort of sold this ideal that if your relationship is good your your intimate partnership then it provides everything you need you don't need anybody else you shouldn't need anybody else right that's so not true Actually, one of my colleagues, uh, Eli Finkel, wrote a book called The All or Nothing Marriage, where he talks about this. And he says, you know, we have this expectation that my, my relationship is supposed to be everything. We know that's not the case. And that it's unfair to expect your partner to provide everything, just as it's unfair for your partner to expect that of you. So we really want to cultivate relationships that give us different things. I mean, your wife needs other people who really know what it's like firsthand to deliver a baby in a way that you're never going to know right um and you know we need we need multiple people and different types of relationships in our lives and that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with our primary intimate relationship not at all
0: okay so i was enamored on this topic and I'm, i'm flipping through the book here page 104 the keystones of relationships and I love how you, I don't know if that was the intent to uh, answer my question in the, in this segment, but it does in so many ways that you, and I'll just read a couple of them, some relationships, some keystones, and you have safety and security. So are there some relationships that provide that? You could easily look at, oh gosh, my parents, let's say that's safety yeah. and security. Yeah. Dad's always there. Mom's always there. And then you've got one that says learning and growth. Cause I may look at mom and dad and go, this isn't true for me, mom and dad who are, might listen to the show, but you know, you could, if somebody could ah. say, gosh, I get safety and security, but learning and growth now, nah, man, they're kind of stuck in their old ways. They don't really pursue that. Um, then you've got emotional closeness and confiding. And I think about the girl with her best friend, the BFF, you know, right. Uh, identity affirmation and shared experience. I have a group of guys that I go do adventures. We don't necessarily come together for emotional closeness and confiding, right. but we do that. And I love, so I love those and you go on, I'm just pulling this out of the book, but I love those. And I, it got me into thinking of, um, because you actually say this on page 98 the reality of your own social universe who's in my life what is the character of those relationships and it made me kind of want to do an audit and go okay where do my relationships fit in these and and do I have any voids and in those voids do I care
1: exactly and we would recommend that everybody do that if you you know if you can it doesn't take that long but to say who what kind of relationships do i have in my life and what would i like a little more of it might be I need some friends to go have adventures with, Yeah, you know, or it might be, I need somebody who's just there for me, but it's never going to, not going to challenge me because we need some people like that. You know, the unconditional love that sometimes we get from our parents or we give to our child. Yeah. Um, you know, we need a, a lot of different things.
0: You, I think it's that same section, Bob, the uh, keystones of relationships and it was um, I wrote down things to do, but you, you pull out, Three things, the power of generosity in um, my paraphrasing was I can't control, you know, what I get, but I can control what I give. And it, it was kind of a do unto others um, type yeah. aspect. Do I have that one am in my, am yeah, I hitting on that? absolutely.
1: Okay. Absolutely.
0: The second one was learn new dance steps. And I paraphrased that to say, kind of do what's uncomfortable, not just self-protect. Am I tracking?
1: Yeah. And let each other change. So, you know, know that, you know, anybody you're in a relationship with is going to change just as you're changing throughout your life. Let yourselves change. And that means you're going to have to learn new dance steps with each other. Oh, now you're into this thing that I never thought you'd get into. How can I change to help you with that or be interested in it or at least support you in it? This new thing that I never dreamed you were going to branch off into, right?
0: Yeah that, that's I'm laughing a little bit cuz that's what happened in my gosh probably my mid 40s I found myself kind of falling away from some of my primary tenets that this is what Kevin does and I found some freedom in those and go no I'm going to try this and yet yeah. the, some of the people close to me are like wait, wait wait a minute I thought you were this I, I thought you didn't eat right. meat uh you know or whatever right. maybe um, right okay you're
1: that's, supposed to stay the same yeah. you're not supposed to and, stay and
0: I and I've done it as well to them as well okay the third one then uh I love the term radical curiosity, and again, my paraphrasing: you're into the other person as opposed to self, or other interested instead of self interested. And back to that phrase I used a minute ago, uh, a beautiful phrase that oh my gosh, I want to do it more of being in a conversation with somebody in a relationship and and saying, "Tell me more," instead of jumping in with my own thing, instead of wherever I'm going, just tell me more. Does that encompass radical curiosity?
1: Radical, absolutely. Say yo tell me more say more about that or oh uh can you can you tell me what you mean by that anything like that where you're genuinely curious yeah um and people will be so happy to tell usually to tell you more to respond to your curiosity
0: well and we're back in that terminologies of looking at what we spend our time with what we pay attention to And as opposed to investing and which, again, is a long term gain. So today, am I you have me thinking of, you know, if I'm keeping a journal of my time allotments today and what when am I investing in relationships? And that doesn't mean. Well, give me a little bit on that. What a little bit of what investing looks like, because it's not just being present necessarily.
1: Well, right, but it starts with being present, and there is something okay. I, I want to name, which was taught to me by one of my Zen teachers. Okay, He, he has a phrase, which I love. He said, attention is the most basic form of love. Hmm. And what he means by that is that our attention is probably the most precious thing we have to give each other, our undivided attention. And, and that's more scarce now. If you think about screens as the ultimate distractors, I'm, sometimes I'm accidentally s- looking at my phone and listening to my yeah. wife talk to me. And that's a recipe for unhappiness. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and so I think, so the first thing is like really stopping what I'm doing, turning, making eye contact and giving somebody my full attention as a starting place for relationship health
0: uh, bob every i've got a book coming out this next summer and you. It, uh, yeah yeah uh, I'll, uh, I'll 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 see if it i'll see if it jives with you um yeah every week my literary agents send me the new york times bestseller list that they would like me to beyond uh, that. I hope to see sure. your book. I'll expect to see your book on it as well. And it's in the, you know, the, our, our categories self or uh, what do they call it? Um, advice, how to miscellaneous. I think is that's where atomic habits is. And some of the big ones there generally, historically, the five love languages are on there. Gary Chapman's book. I, I don't know how many millions. It's amazing that that book is, is continues to be on there. And I want to bring it up because as you talk about attention, I want to pull it out Because the five, I just pulled them up. Words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Um, I want to pull out especially that quality time. Because for some people, they may say, ah, it's not my love language. But you said attention. Because to me, all five of those are just different variations. Yes, of attention? Okay.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because it all starts with the first, it's got to be attention. You know, even to know what kind of gift to give or... To know what this person is doing when they give you a gift, the receiving, right? It's any of those things that in the five love languages start with paying careful attention to who you're with.
0: And would you put that, and that's where I was going to ask, and to some point feel like it's the most paramount thing that anyone can, any of us can hear in this show right now is, okay, if relationships are number one for my own self-interest, not Altruistically, not whatever for my own selfish desires for life. That what's going to give me the goodest life uh, is relationships. Then what are do I know the basic tenets of what makes a good relationship, and where I'm? I don't want to be negative, but where I'm lacking, or where I could bolster myself, where I could be better. Maybe I have some, but how can I have better, more enduring, more peace, less stress, more better? resilience uh of that is that not the most paramount thing that what would you want people to walk away with as they read the book and go away resolutely desiring to do
1: ah you mean to make better relationships yeah well i think the giving someone your full attention yeah. when it when you can is a is the place to start and then this curiosity this Asking yourself, okay, even though I think I know this person and I know what they're going to say and they're going to do because I know them so well, ask yourself, what have I not noticed about this person before? What's here that I've never seen before? And get yourself, excuse me, get yourself to really see what you haven't been able to see before about somebody and then maybe name it if you can. Oh, I never realized that when you talk like this, your voice gets so warm and full of feeling Mm. or when you talk about, you know, your uh, political beliefs or when you talk about your religion or, you know, whatever, just notice and then reflect back to somebody what you notice and they will feel so seen and heard by you when you do that.
0: And I'm picturing the group of people at your average social gathering or that's the office water cooler or it's a, a, you know, a party or the church foyer, or whatever. And a group of people are together and we're used to sitting around. I used to do I was I, I had some good mentors that had me do this to just audit it and just watch everybody talk and watch yeah. their interactions. Generally, it's one person. It's like a pinball machine. Boom, 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 going across. And you wonder and I'm listening to you. Seldom are we very present to the situation. Seldom are we really giving our attention to the person who's talking, especially if we're in a group. Uh, we've got other things going on. And then do we give our curiosity with that, tell me more. So in looking at that dynamic, what would you say for us to be aware of? What's the biggest, I was gonna say enemy, obstacle to us doing that? What what gets in the way? What are the self-image, personal dynamics going on with us that get in the way of us doing this well in relationships?
1: The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and other people, the Mm -hmm. stories that aren't based in reality, that person's not going to like me, or um, I'm too shy, I'm not good at relationships. Any of these stories we tell ourselves about what I'm like, what you're like, which which is the enemy of just being present. Okay, what's here right now? You know, let me put aside this story I'm telling myself about me, about this other person, and let me just see what's here. You know, I could tell myself a story about Kevin Miller, about how important he is, or about how many things he's done, and I could get all intimidated, or I could just pay attention and be interested in in who you are right now with me. That's so much easier, and it's so much less intimidating, Right.
0: It is profound to hear you say, I I was not expecting that answer, that the most, that the primary thing going on when we're in an interaction with another human, whether it's a group, individual, is the story we have about ourselves and the story about the other person. And for me to step into that takes a significant amount of awareness. And again, I feel like I'm coming back to myself. I've got to have a level of what would you call it, Bob? I mean, self-confidence, self-awareness, some level of peace in myself to be even able to do that and get out of my own insecurities primarily?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and, and one, it's one of the reasons why meditation can be really helpful. And that's not for everybody. But, but meditation, what meditation does is you sit down, uh, you watch your mind, you watch all the stuff that comes up, and you just see that the mind just tells stories nonstop. And after a while, if you do it over and over again, you get sick of it <laughs> and, and you begin to really realize, oh, here's my mind telling stories. And then there's the fact that there's a whole world out here that has nothing to do with the stories going on in my mind. And just seeing that difference is an enormous liberation.
0: Okay, well, then I'm going to end with a call out to the book. And I'll put this in the intro as well when we record it later. That um, when I saw uh, this book and that it was so based on research, um, I, I had this, I gotta, I'm got i going to admit, I had a little, I thought I maybe kind of dry. And I'll get, I'll get the point out. Of it. I love the stories, Bob. I love the stories. You guys did such a good job of not only uh, showcasing stories, but telling them in a way that pulled me in and helped me resonate with them understanding. Oh, I feel that. And yet I, you know, I hear the testimony from this person and it was powerful. So I hope uh, we get a truckload of people to, to read the book and, and study it and take it to their dinner table and their relationships. And thank you for what you have done uh, to keep this research going. And now to bring the book um, I'm going to be um, actually be a great Christmas present. Actually, it's not even out yet. It'll be a new year's. It'll be a, in you the can new- order it. I can order, now. can order yeah. it now. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thank you. And thank
1: you. And- thank you for a wonderful conversation and and for helping helping us get this message out which we really want to get out to the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely my honor. Bob, thank you.
1: All right, a great pleasure, Kevin.
0: All right, friends, there you have Robert Waldinger. I really encourage you to type his name in along with TED Talk and check out his video, which has, again, been viewed over 43 million times. His book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness, is being released the day after this episode goes live. Uh, You can find it wherever you get your books. You can also connect with Bob at robertwaldinger.com. Thank you, as always, for choosing to tune into this self-helpful podcast. I hope you got value. I'd love if you left a review, but most of all, I hope you take what you heard here and talk with those you care about. Talk about the concepts, grapple with it, ponder them. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others.